ವಸುಧೈವಸುತ ಕಂಸಚಾಣೂರಮರ್ದನಂ ದೇವಕೀ ಪರಮಂದಂ ಕೃಷ್ಣ ವಂದೇ ಜಗದ್ಗುರು now let me read from the sixth chapter we had done verse number 14 last time 14 and uh, 15 get done 15 last time so verse number 15 and then 16 is ನಾತ್ಯಶ್ನತಸ್ತು ಯೋಗೋಸ್ತಿ ನೈಕಾಂತಮನಶ್ನತ ನಾತಿ ಸ್ವಪ್ನಶೀಲ ಜಾಗ್ರತೋ ನೈವಾರ್ಜುನ ಯೋಗ ಇಸ್ ನಾಟ್ ಅಟೈಂಡ್ ಬೈ ಒನ್ ಹೂ ಈಟ್ಸ್ ಟು ಮಚ್ ಆರ್ ಹೂ ಈಟ್ಸ್ ನಥಿಂಗ್ ಅಟ್ ಆಲ್ ನಾಟ್ ಬೈ ಹಿಮ್ ಹೂ ಸ್ಲೀಪ್ಸ್ ಟು ಮಚ್ ಆರ್ ಹೂ ಕೀಪ್ಸ್ ಅವೇಕ್ ಟು ಮಚ್ ಓ ಅರ್ಜುನ so in the last verse we talked about the deepest meditation in the verse number 15 and the ultimate reality which is attained shanting nirvana paramam and from there sri krishna goes straight to food diet jiddu krishna murti used to say from the sublime to the ridiculous now no it's not ridiculous it's practical um so ami vivekananda used to say I, i know where the shoe pinches unfortunately in spite of all our high philosophy in spite of all our uh, subtle thinking there we are also we are still embodied creatures we are creatures of uh, flesh and blood it's no use forgetting that um somebody told me swami pavitranandan ji used to say do not unma- do not abuse a horse you cannot dismount from so the horse is the body you can't yet dismount no matter how much you say i am the witness i'm not uh, affected by whatever happens to the body there's a limit to beyond which if it's pushed that philosophy doesn't work too well at least in our case uh, we are not yet in, in like sri ramakrishna who can say yes the cancer it hurts but yes i'm in great bliss that's also i can honestly say that so until that time uh, for our spiritual practices certain um, Uh, there are certain physical aspects which we have to take care of very important they can make make or break they can make the difference between success and failure so here the question of food is taken up and sri krishna says too much eating meditation is not possible and uh, too much starving yourself dieting um, fasting again meditation is not possible is sleep sleep also should be regulated and uh, couch potato meditation is not possible and a person who is a workaholic doesn't get enough sleep meditation is not possible you often see people trying to meditate immediately fall asleep i've seen that um at one time uh, one after another several companies in india corporates invited me to give talks on meditation so i have seen that corporate circle also in india um so i would notice when i would there would be a demand for guided meditation and inevitably several people would fall asleep 
One reason is we do not know how tired we are. Many people in, in this society, they don't know how tired we are. You get used to it and the body takes a lot of uh, abuse. So we don't know how tired we have become. So any amount of, a little bit of relaxation, a little bit of calmness, the mind takes it as permission to fall asleep, to catch up on much needed sleep. That's all right. Um, recently, I heard a talk or so I saw somewhere. See how we um, employ and appropriate all these techniques for our own um, economic needs. What I mean is, I saw somebody with this slogan, meditation is the new caffeine. This is what America does to meditation. Meditation is the new caffeine. And this uh, person who was giving the talk, very smart, very well-spoken, uh, said that, see, what we get from, from caffeine, from coffee, is that uh, boost, that energy. Uh, and they were giving the neuroscience of it also. Mm. Something, some kind of... Uh, neurochemical, which tells the brain which, and warns us that we are tired, we need sleep. What caffeine, it seems it does is, it blocks, the, uh, blocks those uh, neurochemicals. It, they, they don't allow those neurochemicals to connect with the brain synapses. So we don't know that we are tired. So we feel uh, we can go on. But of course, there's a price to be paid afterwards. And uh, then the speaker said that meditation can do the same thing for you without the side effects. So meditation is the new caffeine. And the lady who was introducing the speaker said, I'm so glad. I always thought that meditation should become one of our productivity tools. But just the idea, the productivity tool, everything has to be a part of the productivity tools. Uh, it is, it can help. But that's not the purpose of meditation, productivity tool. One of these corporate uh, circles I was invited to speak on in India I gave a talk about spirituality, about devotion, meditation, service. And then the HR manager came in after the talk. He was too busy to sit and listen to the talk. He introduced me and then he disappeared. And after the talk was over, he came back and he said, well, now the Swami has inspired all of us. I'm sure we can all reach our targets. I thought, oh no, he's point <laughs> The whole point of it is lost. The whole thing is you must give a talk which will lead every which will enable everybody to be more productive and they will reach their targets. That's the only thing. Bottom line is the only thing we are concerned about. Not productivity tools. It can help. See, that's the thing. It can help and it does help in your work life, in your personal life. I think there are also a lot of studies to show how it reduces stress, even boosts immunity. Um, so in this context, I quote, I mean, it's apocryphal probably, or it's just a story, but I have heard this, that Maharshi Mahesh Yogi, when he started teaching transcendental meditation here in the West, and then it became very popular. You do this, uh, it will fight against aging, you will have less wrinkles, you will, your uh, immune system will be boosted, you will be more resistant to disease, you can manage stress, you can work hard longer hours, all of these things. And people flock to him. So the story goes that when he went back on one of his early trips, he was here in USA and he went back on his trips to India and he met other, some other monks there. Um, he was a monk of, the order, of one of the orders of Shankara. So the other monk said, what is all this that you're teaching there? That is not the purpose of meditation. And it seems he said that uh, I give them what they want in the hope that one day they will want what I want to give them. So I'm giving them what they want. I don't want to get old. 
I want to have more resistance to disease. I want to look young and be flexible. And I want to be peaceful in the midst of a lot of hard work and tension. Uh, so yes, those benefits will come. But meditation is not just the new caffeine. Uh, it is the purpose of meditation is enlightenment, God realization. And that requires certain um, physical, certain things you have to be careful about. One is food. And Sri Krishna here says, you can see that it's just a general principle. He hasn't fixed your diet, your calorie intake for you. Um, again, not relevant. I was very sick once, about 20, 25 years ago. And I was a young novice. I was put in the hospital. And then I lost weight. I was skinny in, to begin with. And on top of that, I dropped 10 more kilos. So I was looking like a skeleton. And the Swami in charge of the hospital said, call the dietitian. We have to fatten this up. And next bed, there was a Swami who was very obese, uh, you know, suffering from heart disease. And uh, then the dietitian came and fixed the diet for me and for him. And then the obese Swami whispered to me, uh, I, was, I was very young novice. He said, be careful. They're going to make me like you and you like me. <laughs> so, and I've never seen such a diet uh, because I was not feeling like eating. So little bits of food. And I was eating 10 times a day. There were like 10 or 12 meals a day, little bits of food. And obviously what happened was I immediately threw up. And then it was reported again to the Swami that the novice isn't eating. And he was uh, not eating now. We tried to make him eat. Now he has thrown up. So the Swami came charging. He was a very tough Swami. He said, show me your diet. I'm like, why did you throw up? Show me your diet. I showed him the diet. You have to eat 10 times a day or 10 or 12 times. And he, he looked at the diet and immediately he tore it into pieces. This is a man or an animal. You can't stuff him like this. He'll eat whatever he likes. And then he stormed out again. Yes. So notice that just the principle has been given. There's no diet chart which has been fixed here. It's just that uh, do not eat too much and do not eat too little. Don't starve yourself. So Shankaracharya in his commentary, he is actually quoted from the Vedas. A couple of very nice quotes which I'll share with you. One quote from the Vedas and one a popular saying. Or I, I think from the Ayurvedic texts. From the Shatabhata Brahmana he says, he quotes, this is from Shankara's commentary, and he is quoting. Yadu hava atma sammitam annam tadavati tanna hinasti yad bhuyo hinasti tad yad kaniyo na tadavati. Simple statement. What it says is those who take a balanced diet that protects the body, that does not damage the body, those who ex exceed the balanced diet that damages the body. Those who eat less than the balanced diet, that does not protect. So pretty simple, common sense and very good, very good sense, actually. And the popular quote, I've heard this many times, and so it's pretty ancient because Shankaracharya is quoting it 1400 years ago, and he's quoting it. So this is, I'm sure it is from an Ayurvedic text. Adham Ashanasya Samvyanjanasya Tritiyam Udakasyatu Vayo Sancharanartham Tu Chatutham Avasheshayet. So, one fourth of the stomach should be fill, filled up with, uh, uh, with your food, 
including all sorts of condiments or whatever else you're adding to it, all of that should be uh, half of it, half of the uh, stomach. And um, then the third quarter should be with water and the fourth quarter should remain empty for the movement of air. So to divide the, your capacity into four parts and half of it, two quarters with food, one quarter with water, and the fourth one should leave it empty. One Swami put it this way, that, uh, of course it's for monks. Whatever you'd like to eat, um, eat a little less than that, a simple rule. And the quality of food which you would want, eat a slightly like a lower quality than that, not higher. Uh, if you're used to certain kind of food, a little less. One monk, he told me that the rule they had made in their ashram. The monastery was there and attached to that nearby, there was a uh, like a dorm for children coming from poor families. And the rule made by the head monk was the food in the ashram should be of lower quality than the food given to the children in the, in the dorm. So the principle being that uh, you should not e be eating better than the children there, you as monks. So th these are little small rules and they are very helpful. And then eating too much, eating too little, I think uh, spiritual seekers have this kind of obsession about food sometimes. Uh, they do, some of them. One of the books that I read last year was um, the very famous Simone Bale's uh, Waiting for God. Yes. So this French philosopher, mystic, she died very young, starved herself to death, basically. So she was very mystical, extraordinary. If you read that book, it's very inspiring. She was in France just before the Second World War. And then uh, she escaped finally to England um, uh, during the war, again, escaped from the Nazis. Now, her sympathy for others made her stop eating. That the, my countrymen in France during the occupation, they are not able to get good food. I will not eat more than what they are getting or I'll eat less than that. It, this thing, of course, her not eating predated uh, the Second World War. She always had this feeling... She would always eat less and less if you see the picture skinny. And that's a common thing uh, often among um, spiritual seekers. Sometimes it comes from self-denial. Again, not relevant, but one thing which touched me was she writes about one of her uh, dreams. She had a dream about God. And, and the oft-recurring dream for her would be, God is feeding me. <laughs> See, I can't eat. So the whole dream would be like, God is somebody who's feeding me. So that was very touching. She died of starvation. She wouldn't eat. I, I've known so many monks like that. When I was a novice, my, uh, I remember one of the young monks, young novices, very austere. At first, it sounds so inspiring. This young man, he would... Uh, um, you know, he would serve all of us food. So you can imagine it's hot and humid and physical work is really saps you. He would carry these heavy buckets of dal and rice and all and uh, serve all the monks sitting with the others. 
and when the the system is when the we have finished eating those who are serving they will sit down to eat and the the monks who run the kitchen itself is a huge kitchen for hundreds of monks and novices so the monks who are actually the uh, staff of the kitchen they will um, serve the those who had served others and finally they serve themselves or the others before leaving they serve but this young man he would serve everybody along with the team of other um, those whose duty was to serve food to other and i have done it myself it really is exhausting you will be soaking wet by the time it's finished and then he would serve the next batch of people his own friends who had served others they would sit down to eat he would serve them and then the monks who ran the kitchen he would serve them by the time all of us would have retired for our uh, customary afternoon siesta he would come back not eating again he would have no, he wouldn't eat and you won't believe this but i have seen it it actually happened he would come back he would collect actually collect leaves and grass from the fields and clean it and boil it and eat that and that is obviously far too much but i have seen it go to that extent sleep this particular uh, uh, novice he was to minimize sleep he would meditate late to late in the night and he would get up very early in the morning and in the meantime um, the three four hours of sleep that he got he elevated sort of inclined his bed so that it wouldn't be a comfortable bed he had put bricks on one side of the brick bed and so it was sort of inclined like this how we found out was one day there was an almighty crash in the dead of the night and he had slipped off the bed <laughs> and he finally we was made to climb down from all of that extreme thing because but because he was sincere he was saved other people either they snap because of overdoing such things or they just give up in frustration after some time um but this boy was very sincere because the ashram he had come from a very senior monk who was the head of that ashram who had seen him from his early days as a novice when he came to the main monastery that senior swami called the principal of our um, uh, monastic training center and told him you take care of please take care of this boy i'm sending to you he is a simple village boy but he is very sincere so i know the swamis who were above us were very protective about this young man ultimately he became balanced he became more to what geeta says not too much eating not too much not too little eating not too little sleeping and not too much sleeping so yoga is not possible what happens is too much eating or too much too little eating it increases tamas in the body mind system too little sleep uh, or too much sleep again induces tamas in the body mind system so it won't allow meditation all right next in the same vein he continues 17th verse yuktahara viharasya yukta cheshtasya karmasu yukta svapnavabodhasya yogo bhavati dukkha he who is moderate in food and movements in his engagement in actions and in sleep and wakefulness attains to yoga which destroys misery so food sleep and then vihar actually means literally means taking a walk walk but it means exercise and recreation so exercise and recreation and chesta here means work so four elements have been mentioned here 
balance in food, balance in sleep, uh, balance in your exercise and recreation, and balanced, balanced work. So these four elements, if you, they are there in your life, yoga bhavati dukkha, then only your practice of meditation will help you to overcome suffering. Then only it will work. Otherwise, it won't work. I remember when I joined the order about 25 years ago in, a, in the monastery where I was in Deokar, we had a Swami who was the head of the um, center at that time, a wonderful Swami. I mean, I'm so, not only me, all of us who joined under his care, we are so grateful that at the beginning of monastic life, we found such a good example. And the, if one thing you could, um, one word you could describe him was balance. It's pretty austere balance, but balance. Balance, routine. Every day, uh, without fail, he would get up earlier than all of us. And without fail, he would go and sit ramrod straight in the meditation hall before us. And he would leave after us. He would have his food exactly with everybody else in the ashram. You know, in the same time, sit with the there's a small kids, school teachers, novi, young novices, other monks. And he would come and sit with us, the food exactly at the same time, exactly the same food we ate. He had a precise time for studies. So he would teach us, now he says, one hour every day in the morning in the, uh, the roof of the, he would sit on the floor of the roof in the monk's quarters and on mats and study. And after that, he would study for one more hour himself, but always precisely, not more, not less. And, I mean, his routine, he could write it down um, and you could, you know, they say for Kant, you could uh, correct your watch by his routine. The great German philosopher Immanuel Kant. So people would correct their watches by when he took the took a walk in his hometown of Königsberg. In the afternoon, he went to for a walk at three o'clock, I think, or something like that. And they would correct their watches. So he was so precise about his routine. There's a joke about, I'm actually actually a real story. I told you earlier. Uh, so he would go up to the church and can come back to his home. And uh, at the church, he would see the clock tower there, big tower at the clock. Old towns, uh, old cities had it. I've seen in India, there are cities which still have these clock towers. And uh, Kant would take out his pocket watch and look at the clock tower and wait for the uh, clock to strike. And then he would um, correct his watch and he would walk, walk back. One day he asked the priest, the pastor in the church, Father, how do you set your time? And the father said, by you, by looking at your walk. So they were correcting time by looking at each other. Yes. So the Swami was like that. Exact time for going to office, exact time for uh, evening walk, uh, every day, rain or sunshine, uh, exact time for evening prayer, meditation. Only once in the several years I saw him, one day only I saw in the evening, there was a guest, uh, you know, uh, another senior monk who loved to chat. So I could see our Swami becoming visibly uh, sort of, you know, uh, uncomfortable. Time for prayer came and went and the other Swami was chatting, but because he was an eminent monk come from the, our main monastery, our Swami had to entertain him. And later he told, just, just that one day, later he told us novices that this is not good for you young people to see that your uh, Swami is sitting in the office in the evening instead of meditating. That He did it only once. But balance, extraordinary routine. And we thought that was normal. 
It's only when another Swami visited from another uh, ashram and he, in his delight, he told us young novices, your Swami is extraordinary. He does not have one minute to spare. That means his routine is so well set. It may seem mechanical, but it's not. Just the things that you want to do in your life, why not automate them? If, if I have to decide every day in the morning when I will get up, it's a new thing for me to decide. One day very early, one day very late. That's an awful way of leading your life. So the power of deciding what to do should be used for higher things, not what to eat or what to wear. You can see monks don't have to decide what to wear. It's all set for them. What to eat, whatever is given, when to get up, exactly as the, um, uh, the mon monastery routine suggests. That gives you a structure and it's a balanced structure. Notice, it's not an extreme structure. It's, it's a very austere balance, but it's a balanced structure. Not very extreme. Not in the sense that he's meditating all day long. Not in the sense that he's working all day long. Rather, I, I consider it much more difficult and much more efficacious to lead this kind of a balanced life for decades and decades. Instead of suddenly in a burst, uh, seven days, meditate 16 hours a day, and then the eighth day have a nervous breakdown, that's no good. Uh, so this is balance. The philosopher Arinda Chakravarti said, I was delighted once I went to one of your uh, monasteries, our monasteries. He was saying that just today he was called, he called me, he was saying that um, the Swami who is in charge of the monastery, an elderly Swami, once in the evening I saw him come, uh, perspiring profusely and so in, in the bhakti shastras one of the characteristics of a person going into an ecstasy is that the hair stands on the end and you perspire and so I, said, I asked the Swami so are you coming down from an ecstasy of uh, devotion he said no I'm coming down after playing ping pong the, the table tennis <laughs> and he said I, I really appreciated that, that at this age also the Swami uh, takes this exercise so, balanced life, exercise, and work. All the monks. So, I'm Vivekananda. When he spoke about the four yogas, Karma Yoga, Bhakti Yoga, Raja Yoga, and Jnana Yoga, he, he made it a point to add, quite apart from your meditation, study, and devotional practices, it is important that everybody should take part in the work of the ashram. So, work is very good. Very good for mental health. And of course, for spiritual health. Then, the next verse. Verse number 18. Yada viniyatam chittam atmanneva vatishthate nispriha sarvakamebhyo Yukta tada. What is the result of this kind of a balanced life? When you practice meditation, he says, when the mind well controlled remains fixed in the self alone and one is free from craving for all enjoyments, then one is said to have attained yoga. Yada viniyatam chittam. The mind controlled in this way. With a balanced life, very important. Food balanced. Um, sleep balance, um, exercise and uh, play, and uh, 
um, work. All of these in a balanced proportion when you sit for meditation. If that allows you to sit for um, even half an hour in the morning and half an hour in the evening, that's also good enough. Your mind will become concentrated. Um, so he says, in this way, chittam atman neyavatishtate, your mind settles on the self, pure consciousness. So I'm not the body, I'm not the mind itself, and I am the witness consciousness. Stay with that awareness. That is the mind settling on the self. Of course, those who are doing deity meditation, japa, mantra japa, and visualization of the deity, there it would mean your mind settles on the deity. And he says, nispriya sarva kamebhya, not hankering up after satisfaction of multiple desires. Satisfaction of multiple desires, what the desire does is called raga, attraction for things. In the word in Hindi, you know, they say the sadhus, you want to sit still. Bhagata means it makes you run around. So you want to sit still. And what desire does is it prompts you to run around. Run around means not physically. One might be sitting still, but the mind is running around. If you pull back the mind, at the same time there are desires. What will happen is, the mind will, if you forcefully not think about the things which you want to think about and, and forcefully keep the, try to keep the mind and the witness consciousness or on the deity, you know, Krishna or Shiva, mind will refuse to cooperate. So the mind which is stuffed with hankerings or negativities, guilt, complexes, unhappiness, it will refuse to cooperate in meditation. Either you will feel sleepy or you will feel distracted something. Those are the, uh, the sullenness of the mind. <laughs> like a little child who doesn't want to study and you take away his Xbox and make him do mathematics or something. So you can see the expression on the face of the kid. So that's, that's the expression the mind gives you when you force the mind to do what it doesn't want to do. So this Priya Sarva Kamebhya, the only way to fix that is to, to give up, to stop this hankering. Spriha, thirst. Nispriha, free of thirst. Thirst for what? Sarvakamevya, all sorts of desires. Desires of the senses, desires for uh, appreciation, desires for um, material wealth and success, all of those desires, you are not being prompted by them. Yukta ityuchyatetada. Then alone you are said to be truly settled. You are truly settled in yoga. Very nice verse is coming up next. Yatha dipo nivatastho ningate sopamasmrita yogi no yata chittasya yunjato yogamatmanaha. Even as a lamp placed in a place free from any breeze does not flicker. This is the simile for a yogi of controlled mind practicing concentration on the self. So the unflickering, the flame of a lamp, this is the simile used in many places to denote meditation, to show what meditation is like. Notice, it's not that the flame has gone out. The flame is there. That means the mind is working. But it's so fine-tuned, so pure, that it, it's like an unflickering uh, flame. The flame is there, but there's no wind to make the flame flicker. So the mind is tuned, it is not disturbed by anything external, it's not disturbed by internal raga dvesha, likes and dislikes and complexes and negativities or strong desires. 
those things are not there external disturbances internal disturbances not there then the mind focuses what do you have to do the three steps the final steps of patanjali yoga dharana dhyana samadhi so dharana you focus it could be the deity meditation you are focusing on the form you have imagined the form of uh, visualize the form of shiva by the way what is the difference between visualizing and imagining is one thing to understand in deity meditation you have said you are told that you think of god in the form of krishna or shiva or durga and you basically you are imagining it but how what is this difference between visualization and imagination in sanskrit the words are bhavana and kalpana bhavana is meditation and kalpana is imagination so what's the difference between me trying to visualize the form of shiva you know the blue color deity with the moon on the forehead and the locks of hair and sitting with a tiger skin around his waist and sitting in yoga posture in the snowy himalayas and in, in samadhi that's a visualization suppose now we visualize spider man or superman what's the difference this is also imagination that's also imagination no one kashmiri shaiva philosopher makes clear the difference he says these meditation techniques suggested the bhavana suggested in various scriptures what is this bhavana there is an existing reality which you are unable to catch right now and these are hints from people who have realized they are ways hints suggestions to your mind if you think about it visualize in this way one day it will become a reality you will see it it's already an existing reality you just don't see it now when the mind is capable enough it will it will be able to see that that reality that divinity whereas kalpana imagination is the creation is the creativity of an artist i can put together many ideas in my mind and create a character like spider man no matter how much you meditate on spider man you're not going to see spider man because spider man doesn't exist the fictional character so shiva or krishna or whatever the forms of god or the forms of the avatar they are not fictional characters they are actual spiritual realities which will manifest at one time so this is the difference you visualize bhavana and keep your mind there that is dharana focusing when you do that the mind will flicker so you go through four phases you for phase 1 i keep my mind on the deity and the mantra i repeat om namah shivaya and here is the uh, deity the form of shiva which i have been taught to visualize then the next thing will come is distraction something will come up either externally or in deep from inside so internally something will come up and my third will be mind wandering the mind will start following that distraction and the fourth will be the recognition that my mind has wandered from the form of shiva and the mantra om namah shivaya and i bring it back so these are the four it will go and it will keep happening you are not supposed to do it now i am going to meditate now let me be distracted and enter the second stage no that happens you are not supposed to enter be distracted but it happens as you go through it and bring it back again and again and the mind goes into dhyana meditation actual meditation so meditation is the seventh limb of eight limbs ashtanga yoga the seventh limb is meditation um again i must have mentioned this earlier i noticed in daniel goldman's book focus um there he mentions some neuroscience studies that the four stages in meditation which every meditation manual more or less points out it's a common thing you can observe neuroscience has now confirmed that there are different circuits in the brain which are different uh, neural pathways which light up 
in fMRI imaging uh, and the meditator can reports yes at that time my mind wandered at that time I recognized it at that time I made made the effort to pull it back and they see different parts of nearby parts of the brain lighting up so it was quite amazing that these four stages which are mentioned again and again even in the Gita they are mentioned uh, they actually correspond to something that's happening in the brain anyway so this is the first stage dharana or focus again when i'm saying first stage there are three stages of meditation dharana dhyana samadhi but this is actually the uh, fifth of the eight limbs of yoga yama and niyama one and two the moral practices asana number three sitting posture then pranayama that is breathing a control of the breath that is number four fifth is pratyahara pratyahara withdrawal and uh, sixth the sixth one is dharana the one which i was talking about focusing and that focusing is intermittent because it's disturbed when the disturbance goes away then uh, it is dhyana the disturbance may come but it will be very little and it will mind will flow like um, they say oil being poured from one vessel to another so like continuous flow not discrete but continuous flow and that leads to absorption if you can hold on to that dhyana and that is also effort dharana is effort dhyana is effort and samadhi also it will be achieved but it, it will just before that there will be a subtle kind of effort very subtle focus is necessary to deepen dhyana into samadhi meditation into samadhi and that samadhi is also a step by the way a, a, a limb of the eight limbs that samadhi is called savikalpa samadhi or sampragyata samadhi the ultimate samadhi asampragyata or nirvikalpa samadhi comes after that so all of these eight limbs are meant to achieve that nirvikalpa samadhi or asampragyata samadhi so of these eight the final or the highest is sampragyata samadhi all right what else did i want to say so in that samadhi mind is also active active means it's still but it's not uh, fallen asleep it's not blank uh, it it is totally absorbed in the object of meditation it could be the deity you're, you're uh, visualizing or it could be the self i am the witness self and the mind becomes steady in that in that feeling or in that um what else what can i call it in that reality mind becomes steady in that does not flicker anymore but the mind is steady it's awake it doesn't fall, fall in asleep so that is the example which is given yatha deepo nivatastu in a windless place when you place a lamp and the flame does not flicker such is the example given about the yogi who has fixed his mind on the self so here the deity meditation is not being talked about it's straightforward vedantic meditation all right this is however just the surface so these things you have to hear from uh, the teachers you know how deep it goes i will make a few points here um a very perceptive comment was made by a non-dualist master living in india in the 1950s or 60s um atmananda krishna menon so in fact recently i was reading the reminiscences of 
of Joseph Campbell. He wrote this book, Bakshish and Brahman, <laughs> about his tours in India. In the 1950s, he went with Swami Nikhilananda from the East Side Center. They went in a group to visit India. And Joseph Campbell, of course, had many other interests. He was interested in art and history and all. So he went with uh, Swami Nikhilanandaji and, and he toured over India. And he has given his reminiscences, his, his experiences. Um, interesting, Nehruvian India, 1950s, early 1950s. I think he got to meet uh, Nehru also, probably. Now, in that, there's a whole chapter where he actually goes and meets Atman and the Krishna Menon in Kerala. And um, Joseph Campbell actually held Atman and the Krishna Menon in great uh, regard. Okay, that's just the background. One comment, which he did not give to uh, Joseph Campbell. I read it elsewhere. The comment is this, very perceptive. He says, when the mind by whatsoever means is turned towards the self, capitalists, the mind loses the characteristics of mind and remains as the self. This is called samadhi. Beautifully said. It clarifies a lot of problems. The mind by whatsoever means it's turned towards the self, the Atman, pure consciousness, witness consciousness. It loses the characteristics of being a mind and it remains as the self itself. That is called Samadhi. It's a state of the mind. But in that state of the mind, it is very much unmind-like. It remains as the self. Now see what problem it solves. That, that thing that by whatever means, one of the means, very popular, the, the well-known means of doing this is Patanjali Yoga, the Ashtanga Yoga. By that, you can calm the mind down to the eight limbs of meditation, reach Sampragnata Samadhi, and finally, hopefully, a Sampragnata Samadhi, when the mind becomes free of thoughts, Chitta Vritti Nirodha, and remains uh, shining in the light of the self. Swami Vivekananda compares it to a lake without any ripples. The water of the lake is very clear, crystal clear water. First condition, mind must be pure. Second condition, the water of the lake must be free of ripples. When the water is free of ripples and waves and it is crystal clear, then you can see through the water to the bottom of the lake. Exactly like that, when the mind is pure and still and turned towards the self. And still, then the self is clear that I am this witness consciousness. That is the third sutra in the Yoga Sutra. Tada drashtu swarupe avasthanam. The witness consciousness is appreciated in its real nature at that time in Samadhi. But that's one way only. This is the controversy. Uh, I often get myself into trouble. There are people who say on both sides. One group says that you are not emphasizing Samadhi enough. Another group says, uh, why are you talking about Samadhi? In, uh, pure Advaita Vedanta is not necessary. What Advaita Vedanta does is, it does actually the same thing. Uh, it, it turns the mind towards the self, not by the Ashtanga Yoga, but by Vedantic inquiry. Drik Drishya Viveka. If you practice it phenomenologically, it means you feel it and you go step by step, it can do that. Avastatraya, the method of the seer and the seen, the method of the three states of waking, dreaming and deep sleep, the method of the five layers of the human personality, Panchakosha, Viveka. In these multiple methodologies, 
all it does is what krishna menon is saying atmananda is saying it is one more way of turning the mind towards the self till it loses the at one point it will lose the characteristics of being a mind of self alone shines it's appreciated as it is that samadhi but that samadhi achieved through enquiry not through the yogic method of you know controlling your breath sitting in lotus posture whatever sri ramakrishna says that bhukti teo samadhi hoy kumbhak hoy and samadhi by in deep devotion in intense devotion to god there comes times not just once number of times you will have the mind remains absorbed in the ishta devata out of sheer love and surrender to the ishta devata and samadhi is achieved by sheer love by sheer bhakti samadhi can be achieved devotion by self enquiry this samadhi can be achieved by yogic practices of course this samadhi can be achieved so this is but what is the nature of this samadhi it is the mind remaining uh, in its real nature as the self the real nature of the uh, mind is actually the self the pure mind and the self are not different what after all this is clear in advaita vedanta the self is all that there is so the, in some sense the mind also must be the self so where do we clearly perceive it now advaita vedanta goes further than this but we will see that later so that's the first point i want to make the deeper point it is not just a deep kind of concentration or absorption the samadhi which is being to- spoken about here with the example of the unflickering light the unflickering light is not the unflickering mind the real meaning of the unflickering light is the light of consciousness is the atman the only thing that is really ultimately unflickering is the atman which neither increases nor decreases there is no possibility of its flickering like sunlight light and light alone no question of increasing decreasing flickering nothing so exactly like that the atman is that and the when the mind is calmed and you realize i am not the body and mind i am the light streaming into this body mind and uh, to the body from the self from i me myself the real self then the mind tends to become still stop there 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 is no difference between the mind and the real self it's the mind is no longer an obstruction to the real self the real self is the real unflickering lamp uh, unflickering flame flame so that's what's, what there's a deeper meaning when we first approach it the first pass i took at this verse we felt that it is the mind they're talking about uh, in the gita the mind becomes like an unflickering lamp when it flickers it is mind when it doesn't flicker it is the atman so when it flickers and it's the mind is the atman not there atman is still there it's obscured we don't we don't uh, we don't see it as it is now i'm speaking in yogic language the non dualists will smile uh, <laughs> give a superior smile at this point but anyway it is important to appreciate the yogic aspect of it also it, it's uh, practical at other times the the mind the flickering of the mind obscures the unflickering light of atman in fact that's why sometimes this becomes this becomes a differentiating factor between tibetan buddhism and uh, advaita uh, and yoga and advaita vedanta because we speak very clearly about mind and atma in vedanta and yoga also in sankhya also mind and atma two separate things you are not the body not the mind you are this atman 
whereas the tibetan buddhist would say um pure mind or the nature of the mind they are talking about the same thing because they use terms like clear light of the void what is the void the still mind what is the clear light streaming through the void the atman itself pure consciousness um so this atma jyoti light of the atman it is peace itself because it never flickers the mind can uh, approximate it in samadhi but other times it starts flickering but the atma jyoti never flickers so it is it neither comes nor goes neither increases nor decreases it is peace itself and that peace is real joy not the joy experienced in the mind the pleasure in the mind that we keep running across we're running after it increases and decreases and that comes and goes and usually goes up very fast so the real joy is in the light of the atman that is that unflickering uh, consciousness why is a simile used like the unflickering lamp of uh, unflickering flame of the lamp yatha deepo nivatastha is a simile why is it used the reason being what they are trying to talk about the light of the atman or the atman which is light it cannot be talked about you cannot talk about it directly and the moment you are talking about it you try to indicate it it's already within the realm of the mind working that which is beyond the mind cannot be referred to by language also only way you can use use things like similes uh, metaphors or paradoxical language things like that that's why the simile is used because it's beyond language how do i do that expel these seven things from your mind the five uh, inputs of the senses your mind should not the mind should not think about form think things which we see don't think about anything that can be seen don't think about anything that can be heard shabda and also the other inputs taste uh, smell touch no no form no sound no touch no taste um, no smell right then expel all thoughts of any kind of misery suffering pain of yourself of others anything physical emotional um, intellectual social political all thoughts of pain all thoughts of happiness whatever pulls the mind that i want to achieve these things everything worldly and spiritual happiness you expel sukha and dukha the five inputs of the senses happiness and pain sukha and dukha expel these from the mind stay with the consciousness which is there in that void in the absence of all of these further deeper this consciousness this light which is there in the absence already the mind is absolutely peaceful not thinking of any object quiet deeply stable silent and quiet now the consciousness which shines there also make sure it is not a stream so, i mean it's a very subtle point which is being made this distinguishes it from the vigyanavada the buddhist vigyanavada which talks about the self as a stream of consciousness stream means consciousness flash 1 flash 2 flash 3 flash 4 flash 
when that is happening, these flashes of awareness, I'm aware, but there's a little flickering there. That flickering, what is what you are aware of is the reflected consciousness, Chidabhasa, which is flickering in the uh, Vijnana Maya Kosha. Your vrittis are still there. The movements of the mind are still there. And each of them carries or reflects consciousness. That reflected consciousness in the series of vrittis, the flickerings of the mind. So you'll have flickerings of consciousness. If you say, see any sense of continuation, any sense of uh, sequence, one, two, three, four, one after another, pure consciousness, pure consciousness, pure consciousness, it's not pure consciousness. <laughs> that which is watching that is pure consciousness. So it's a very subtle point which is being made. Otherwise, but it has to be made. It, that distinguishes you, the pure consciousness, from the reflected consciousness. So what have we got? Five elements. Form, sound, smell, taste, touch. No thought about anything connected to that. This will eliminate the material world from your mind. And then all sorts of subtle forms, ideas, feelings, emotions are there, but they can all be basically boiled down to pleasure and pain. Reject that. Then you will get a stillness. Make it absolutely quiet and still. You will that you know that there is awareness. Make sure that awareness is not a sequence. The sequence will be there because the mind is still active and it keep, keeps on reflecting uh, pure consciousness, your real nature. Then in that ultimate stillness, um, it, that's it. That's what you are. You can't use language to talk about it. What are you supposed to do then? Uh, four things, laya, vikshepa, kashaya, rasaswada, these are the obstacles to meditation. So don't let the mind fall asleep. When you make all these efforts, whether in a deity meditation or you're trying to settle on the pure consciousness, mind, at one point, the mind will fall asleep. Falling asleep is not meditation. Or it may not fall asleep. It may just be quiet. No, being quiet is also not meditation. I have to keep the mind, turn it and keep it on the witness consciousness or on the deity I'm meditating. That is what I'm supposed to be doing. Not being quiet and peaceful, sitting quietly. No. Or falling asleep. No. Then the next thing is Vikshepa. Vikshepa is running around. After some time, the mind starts chattering. It's the habit of the mind to chatter. Chatter about what? Everything except what you want it to focus on. You chatter about the world, about people, about your problems, about uh, what is to be done after meditation. Uh, all sorts of things will keep uh, coming up in the mind. Don't allow it to chatter. Your mind is supposed to focus for this next 30 minutes on the object of meditation or on the self itself. And so bring it back. Make the effort to stop the chattering. Again, I must thank Professor Arindam Chakravarti. He shared a gem today from his guru, um, the, the great Swami Shitaram Dashonkarna. So the gem is very beautiful. Chattering of the mind. He said, his guru told him, um, one of the instructions was, the mind has, a has the nature of chattering, of speech. It talks. Now you may go away into solitude and you stop talking. But the mind will go on talking, chattering away. Or people in solitude develop the habit of talking to themselves. I've seen that, mumbling things to themselves. 
Suppose now you talk, go further, you are in solitude, now you take the vow of silence. I will not speak. You will not speak, the mind will speak internally. Externally, you are not speaking. It is like a pressure cooker. The moment you remove the vow of silence, you will speak even more. <laughs> Make up for all the lost opportunities. So, that is not the way. His guru told him, then what is the way to make the mind stop speaking? The guru said, it is, it is a dictum that poison removes poison. Poison cuts bish, bish ke kate. So poison removes poison. And that's true. All our vaccines, our antidotes, they, are, they depend on what they're trying to remove. They take a little bit of that and then use it. So poison removes poison. And what do you do? If the mind is chattering, you must replace chatter with chatter. Chatter with God. You want to remove worldly chatter? Then fill it moment to moment. Talk to God. Internal. An internal dialogue. No harm there. It's all for the good. Whatever you have to say, say to God. Feel the presence of God, your Ishta Devata, your chosen ideal. You speak. Mentally. You convey your worries, your anxieties, your hopes your prayers for devotion and concentration, good health, whatever it is, whatever is coming to your mind, let the mind chatter, but only to God. So, you will find the mind calms down. You chatter about the world and with the world, the mind will not calm down. It will become more manic. But start talking to God, you will see the mind slowly calms down. And pretty fast, actually. So, when the mind is running around, or chattering, you need to calm down the mind. One way is, of course, talk to God. This is a, I thought I'll share this with you. A very beautiful insight. Then, Rasaswada, um, finding peace and joy and happiness well before any spiritual development. That can happen also. And then in Vedanta Sar, in the last class we saw, uh, two classes back, when you're talking about the obstacles to meditation, you mentioned it. Yeah, a few classes when back. When you right? Oh, there's somebody... Mike is on, I think. And then the third one is uh, Kashaya, which is a kind of um, stillness of the mind. Mind refuses to move forward. It's not sleepy. It's not distracted. It's not in a peaceful, nice state. Sometimes they say there are complexes in the mind, problems in the mind, which, which disturb you so much that you can't meditate and you just remain in a uh, stunned state sometime. Anyway, all of that you have to overcome and bring the mind. The whole point is in every case, bring the mind back to the uh, object of meditation. When you do that, at one time, this stillness will come. And in that stillness, it will be very clear. You can think about it after you come out of that meditation. But in that stillness, it will be very clear that you are this unlimited consciousness. This is the goal of yoga, Sankhya, Vedanta, and I would venture to say um, Tibetan Buddhism also. This is the goal. And you've got it. You are there. Then, Najalayet. That means, and then the instruction is, when you are there, don't do anything more. But then whatever you do, it will throw the mind up. Uh, it will start moving the mind. And the mind moving is no longer with the self as it is supposed to be. So this is it. So is this the goal of all spirituality? Advaita Vedanta says not at all. Not at all. There Advaita Vedanta goes further. It says this is Samadhi. It's a 
very precious, wonderful thing to have. After this, you will have no more doubt about the claims of spirituality. You will, your problems also will be at a very deep existential level. Your problems will be at an end. You know your problems. Whatever the problems were at the worldly level, they're still there, but you are no longer, you know that they are not really problems. You are safe. At that, that level, that consciousness being always there, that is always there. You are, that's your real nature. You are immortal, beyond suffering. You are there. But Advaita Vedanta says, not only in that samadhi, it's exactly the same thing now also. Otherwise, uh, Swami, why are you monks in, say, in India? Why are you running hospitals, schools? Um, here's a funny story. Most revered President Maharaj Swami Sparanandji used to tell this story. Uh, when he was a much, much younger monk, now he's the president of our order. Once he was going in the train and uh, a gentleman seemed to be a villager, but quite uh, well-to-do elderly gentleman, saw a monk, saw him and said, so you're a Mahatma monk. Um, can you see my hand and tell me my future? So that's their idea of a monk. A monk should have all these characteristics, can give you some medicine to cure your disease, can tell you what's going to happen in your future and can bless you so that your problems are removed and your desires are satisfied. Uh, all of which, by the way, are, are true so that uh, <laughs> you don't lose faith in monks. But that's not the point of being a monk. Anyway, can you see my hand and tell me my future? And then Swami said, no, I don't know that. I don't know palmistry. And this actually, the humor is much more in the original rustic Hindi. Uh, the gentleman said, you don't know palmistry. What kind of Mahatma? What kind of monk are you? What do you do? And rather defensively, the Swami is very gentle. He said, oh, well, we run a school for you know, kids from underprivileged families. And the man snapped at him. Run a school? You're a monk? What kind of a monk are you? In Hindi, Sakul chalata hai. Kaisa mahatma hai? School. They can't even pronounce what a school is. Sakul chalata hai. Kaisa, what kind of a mahatma are you? So that's the idea of mahatma. Mahatma, the monk should be immersed in deep samadhi. What we talked about just now, that people will say, yeah, that about sounds right. Your mind should be like unflickering lamp and should sit in lotus posture. And that's it. The moment you shift out of lotus posture, you're not a good monk anymore. Why are you running a school and giving money and, I mean, uh, um, uh, giving money to poor people, uh, treating sick people? It's not the job of a monk. It should be in samadhi. Advaita Vedanta says, even that samadhi is a lower thing compared to your real nature, which is Brahman, which is shining most clearly in Samadhi, which is also everything else that you see, with as Sri Ramakrishna said, with eyes closed and with eyes open. With eyes closed, there is God, and with eyes open, there is no God. What kind of God is that? Sri Ramakrishna said, By closing your eyes, God is there. When you open your eyes, God is not there. It is a very high Advaitic, you know, the sort of the final conclusion. Literally, whatever we do, we are always immersed in that limitless consciousness. Literally here now. You are in the ocean of Brahman right now. As much as the monk who is in Nirvikalpa Samadhi, right now, in your hospital, in your driving in your car, cooking something, talking with a person, reading a book. Yes, we don't see it. That's because we are in ignorance. If you see it, you will see it everywhere. 
So that is the highest Advaitic realization. Uh, the immanent divine shining in every condition, effortlessly so. You don't have to put in all that enormous effort to reach that pinnacle of samadhi which we talked about. It's very subtle and difficult and unstable also. You will slip away from it again. It's of course very valuable, very, very valuable. But Advaita Vedanta is talking about something higher. All right. Um, good. Let's quickly look at a couple of questions before we bring this to an end. To quote, I give people, Abhijit says, I give people what they want in the hope, yes, and so on, is ascribed to Shiddhi Sai Baba. Yes, I've heard that. Right, right. So I said it's, uh, I'm not sure who said it. Sangeeta said, the eating rule is from the yoga text, Hatha Yoga Pradipika. Yeah. This is Mr. Science of Ayurveda. Krishan Roy said, Sri Atmananda's definition sounds very close to what Sringeri Shankaracharya said, when a sword hits a stone, a sword hits a stone, the sword itself gets broken. Correct. It's exactly the same thing. But that's, again, a simile. And it's, you have to catch what he's pointing at, the Sringeri Shankaracharya. But I think Atmananda uh, has said it so simply and directly. When the mind turned towards the self by whatsoever means, loses the characteristics of being a mind. Now he sounds like Gaudapada, Amani Bhava, no mind. Mind becomes then no mind. The self alone remains. That is called Samadhi. The whatsoever means is very important. That It settles all quarrels. Whether you do it by Bhakti or by Yogic meditation or by Vedantic inquiry. But of course, after all of that, after this Samadhi also, Vedanta claims superiority because he said we go beyond that. That's not the end. <laughs> Rabir Basu, holy company is a tremendous calming effect on the mind. How does that happen? Uh, I guess because the person we are meeting is immersed in God, so that has an effect. In fact, one of the characteristics of truly holy company, a truly good sadhu or an advanced spiritual seeker is it, you will see some effect on the mind of people around, around you. Know, everybody will feel calmer or inward, quieter. Uh, Shravani says, many enlightened persons are said to die willingly, mostly in a state of meditation, samadhi. How is it understood in Vedanta context? Does the descendant identify with both mind or body? It's just the body. Um, yes, we come across such instances many, many times. I've myself seen this again and again and again. So it is not uncommon. But again, it's not necessary. The person who has and who's enlightened and realized that I am Brahman, it's very clear. Exact manner of death, it may depend a lot on prarabdha karma. Um, advanced spiritual seekers, we know, yes, they often get, for example, they get a premonition of uh, death. We have seen this happen many times. They die thinking about or meditating on God. That also we have seen. Um, more than this, what will I say? Then... No words to thank you, Maharaj, to give us good wisdom, keeping our minds in peace during the pandemic. Sri Ramakrishna is always protecting us. That is true. Sudhirji says, 
isn't it that the mind is also an object so how does it focus towards a subject self in meditation so how does it focus you see all these descriptions which are given by quietening itself first you in vedanta what do you do you fill the mind with the nature of the self that i am not the body not the my, mind well, what are you doing you're filling these ideas into the mind itself and then talk about what what that reality is that reality is awareness not a thing it is uh, it is not beginning it is no birth no death it is immortal it is pure it's not contaminated with thoughts and feelings and emotions not affected by uh, papa and punya merit and demerit so all these ideas from vedanta texts you get where are where are these ideas now you have surcharged your mind with that that's turning the mind towards the self the mind can never objectify the self you are right the self objectifies the mind whatever is objectified whatever is in the mind whatever the mind thinks of is not the self precisely but the mind which is turned towards the self by first of all turning away from the world notice the the instructions do not think of forms anything that can be seen don't think about it anything that can be heard don't think about it anything that can be tasted smelled touched don't think about it the material reality drops away then anything that can be thought felt remembered stop that one good way of dropping that is to stop thinking about sukha dukkha pleasure and pain anything connected which is pleasant which is unpleasant stop that now the mind has stopped doing uh, what it can do and yet all the awareness understanding of what you are the pure awareness is there in the mind in this silence the pure awareness becomes distinct not that the mind makes it distinct pure awareness is distinct by itself the veil which uh, the mind was generating has for the time being slipped away and then in the pure awareness by the pure awareness the pure awareness is re- recognized uh, sri ramakrishna uses the language bodhe bodhkara uh, being aware of awareness or being enlightened in the light itself it's not the mind which gives you that enlightenment it is just the enlightenment is the shining forth of the self itself um in the gaudapada karika shankaracharya says of course there he talks about the method of vedantic enquiry by that method you come to it and then what does the jnana yogi see at that point he says it's a mass of non dual consciousness revealed by that non dual consciousness not by the mind the mind is there it's just still the great abhinava gupta a kashmiri shaiva philosopher and saint he says uh, notice that all these methods they are not necessary because none of the methods or they are necessary but but notice before we talk about the methods of meditation notice one thing none of these methods can reveal shiva just as a pot cannot illumine the sun now he has given you for those who understand vedanta he has given you a very powerful pointer to what you are pot cannot reveal the sun it's impossible it is the sun which shines on the pot and reveals it the pot cannot is not does not illumine itself and it cannot illumine the sun it's it's absolutely impossible now what is he talking about the pot is the mind using whatever meditation technique and all of that and you are the sun 
So keep the pot and sun analogy or simile again and then apply it to yourself. You know what the mind is. You are aware of it internally. So if the mind is like a pot, what is it that it can't illumine but which is shining on it continuously? You stop with that, you will reach the self. You will, you will realize. The mind will be plunged into samadhi. But for that to happen, all these conditions, to keep the mind quiet in meditation. Sri Ram says, Thankful for educating and enlightening us with your clear, precise teachings. Thanks for this wonderful opportunity. All right. Yes, we will go on in the next session in the fall. Onion and garlic. Should students of Vedanta take onion and garlic? Avoid if you can. If you can, cannot, there's no problem. This is part of Sattvika Hara. One thing you notice about food, when Krishna mentions this, and later he will give more details, but nowhere he enters into any kind of uh, specific details. You know, He gives general principles. Vegetarian food, non-vegetarian food, um, onion or garlic. Or, these details are provided sometimes by later scriptures. But the Upanishads, Gita, they never make specific recommendations. Alpana says, tendencies to stop breathing because that disturbs the deep silence. This breathing gets very low, yet what is the way out? You're right. In Samadhi, in that moment, breath stops. I've actually seen this. Not in deep Samadhi that I've not seen, but what you might call mini Samadhis. I've seen, they go into it and they come out of it in a shudder. And it's not difficult to, um, to attain that that moment, a little samadhi. So one Tibetan master, he gave a very nice recommendation. He said, this kind of samadhi which you're talking about in the Gita or Yoga Sutras, this prolonged deep absorption, it is the work of a lifetime. It's hard work at a very subtle level. But before that, well before that, what we can aspire for are those little moments of stillness and insight Repeated many times. Many times, little samadhi. One time big samadhi later on, but many times little samadhi is possible. He says, otherwise, he says, the problem with this prolonged samadhi is at our level, is that in attempting to stay with that insight, first of all, you have to get that insight. For that, all of Vedantic Shravana, Manana, Shravana and Manana are necessary. In the attempt to stay with that insight, what happens is, that insight quickly becomes contaminated with thoughts for us, for ordinary people. Somewhere the mind will start flickering, a little bit of thought will come into it. Better to abandon that insight, take that shudder and come out of it and then dive again. If you can't hold your breath for so long, don't. Don't turn blue in the face. Come up, take a deep breath, relax a little and then start again. Here is the object. I'm seeing it with the eyes. Here are the eyes. I'm aware of it with the mind. Here is the mind. I'm aware of it with. Stay there. All right. There are so many comments and questions. Yes, there will be cut open shut classes, but that will be online. And these classes also will resume. 
we'll see as much as possible we can keep it online so that people who are at other places apart i mean far away from new york they can attend live and uh, yeah in the worst cases of course everything will be recorded and uploaded all right please take care and stay safe let me end with the shanti om shanti 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 hari om tat sat shri ram krishna arpanamastu